Please turn in your New Testaments to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. And we'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 9. Acts 17, 1 through 9. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, would you functionally actually place us under the Word? Would you help us to come under you? Come under your truth. That you might speak what is real into our lives and that it might make a difference, even an eternal difference. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 17, 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he was saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and did a great, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women of the town. But the Jews were jealous. The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king named Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. I love music. I quote a lot of songs to you. I know... uh, That's good and bad sometimes, maybe. But I I do love, musically at least, the song by John Mayer, Waiting on the World to Change. I won't quote the lyrics, but it's about a a bunch of guys just kind of sitting on the side of the road who say, you know, you can't break in. You you, you know, everything's already fixed. All the the politics are happening. And me and my friends, we just can't make a difference. So we're just waiting, waiting on the world to change. And I want to tell you something. That is the exact opposite of the Apostle Paul. Paul is turning the world upside down. This is a world that's harder to break in than the politics of the United States. This is a world ruled by Caesar who is uncontested as the ruler over all the world, who his will will be done and how it is pressed down on people. But we're not waiting on the world to change. If we have Christ, who is God the Son... We read in verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. You know, when the Apostle Paul went into the city with the gospel for the first time, he expected people to receive Christ. He expected people to have their hearts open to the reality of, of their need as sinners, as selfish people before a holy God. 
People were desperately trying to fill their lives in any way with whatever they could to, to be happy and to, to have meaning. And yet empty, yet yearning, yet experimental, yet never finding. He expected them, when they heard the gospel, to put their trust in Jesus. And he expected, every time he came into one of those cities, he expected a church to be born of all these new believers to carry, continue to carry that good news to the people. There's a famous story about a young minister who was really struggling with preaching and, you know, he, he's, he, he feels like maybe he's insecure, he's not sure how it's going, and, and he went to hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great British preacher, in fact, the most popular preacher at that time, not only in Britain, but the whole world. And, and he asked uh, the great preacher, quote, what his secret was. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, well, well, young man, you don't, you don't expect God to convert someone every time you preach the gospel, do you? And the young man said, of course not. And Spurgeon said, that is precisely your problem. Paul expected hearts to be opened. He expected churches to come from the heralding of the gospel. And do you know why he expected that? I'll tell you why. It's right here in the text. Because Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ. But that's not all Paul was expecting. He was expecting opposition to the gospel as well. You know why? Because not everyone likes the idea of Jesus being the Christ. So is Jesus the Christ? What does it mean, Jesus is the Christ? What would it mean for us to act out on the idea and the reality of Jesus being the Christ? I'd like to work off of one sentence today. You can write it down. Maybe it's a great place to talk about this passage later. And the sentence simply is this. What you believe about Jesus is not as important as what the Scriptures say about Him. It's just a very simple concept, isn't it? What you believe about Jesus is not as important as what the Scriptures say about Him. And I want to start by looking at what people believe about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus... Paul walked into Thessalonica, the gospel of Jesus Christ had never come there before. Never, never had anybody uttered the truth about salvation in this city. And you've got to understand, this is the largest city in the province of Macedonia. This is the capital of the province of Macedonia. Sometimes I think, you know, we think about the ancients and these little backwater cities. There were 200,000 people in the Thessalonica. Enter the apostle Paul. He walks into town, and as was his custom, he walked to, up to the first person to ask the question he always asked when he walked into town, and that is, could you tell me where the Jewish synagogue is? And why did he ask for where the Jewish synagogue is? Well, he's got a bunch of people, 200,000, minus the folks who are Jews, minus the, the Greeks who are going to the synagogue and, and, and becoming theists, uh, uh, monotheists instead of polytheists, like many gods, like the Romans. And then there were some other religions that were going on at that time because he wanted to start with people who understood the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who understood the stories of why God 
would work with one people to preserve that word, to focus that word, to focus salvation, to bring salvation out of one people, not just diluted all over the place with the intention of through that one people to bless the whole earth. Through that one people, the Jews, for salvation to come forth and for the word of God to be written down and for that focus of salvation to come to us even today in Ridgeland, Mississippi. Well, Paul wasn't just some itinerant novel traveling speaker that people were just curious about. Paul was far more educated in Judaism than the average leader of a synagogue out in some province in the Roman Empire. Paul studied under Gamaliel since the time he was 12 years old. That was the greatest teacher, the greatest professor of Judaism in the world. And Paul studied under him. Paul's credentials as a teacher, as a Pharisee, were impeccable. So of course they would allow Paul to come and speak in the synagogue. The difference is, is that on the way to destroy the church in Damascus, Jesus kind of intercepted Paul, knocked him down, spoke to him, the one who hated this new sect of Judaism that he felt undermined the law and the prophets and the traditions and the temple and everything else. And he was intercepted by Christ. He was forgiven. He was born again into a new life. And see, what's so great about the Apostle Paul is all that learning, all of that training isn't lost. It's deployed for Jesus. Nobody can talk about why Jesus is the long-awaited Savior that connects the dots for Jews in Judaism, why he is the Messiah like the Apostle Paul. And so he's coming into town with love, humility, boldness to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus, he says, shows this by dying on the cross to defeat our sin and rising again from the dead to defeat death. And Jesus, he says, reigns at the right hand of the Father and has the right to give salvation to all who come to Him and put their faith in Him based on His works on the cross and the empty tomb rather than our works because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, Jesus is the Christ. What does it mean? I mean, literally, what does it mean? Well, the word Jesus word Jesus, you shall call his name Jesus, the angel told Joseph, for he shall save his people from their sins. The word Jesus just means Savior. That's all it means. He shall save. And what does the word Christ mean? Why is he called Jesus Christ and not just Jesus or just Christ? Christ is the Greek word for Messiah from Masa or Mashiach in Hebrew. The Messiah simply means the Lord's anointed one to save and reign on David's throne forever and reign over all forever. He is the, the, the one and only, the anointed of God. It literally means the one anointed with oil for the office of authority, anointed to be king. So, 
Jesus is the Christ is basically saying Jesus is the Savior who reigns over all as deliverer and as the anointed one. And Jesus alone, Paul says, because of God's holiness, because of his majesty, God, uh, Jesus alone can heal our broken relationship with God. Jesus alone can rule over us with grace, love, and truth and not just keep demanding more and more from us. Never able to get there. Always having to do more, give more. And we'll get there in a moment, what that's like. But not everybody believed that Jesus was the Christ, just as they do not now. They had their own personally customized view of Jesus. And it's funny how today even people say, my Jesus wouldn't, my Jesus would do this. My Je- yeah, well, that's your Jesus. Personally customized view of Jesus or a politically shaped view of Jesus. That was certainly the case of the Jews in Thessalonica. Jesus did not fit their agenda. Jesus tore down their leadership and their legalism and all that they said needed to be done to be accepted by a holy God. And are you kidding me? It's already done? Are you kidding me? We believe and we rest in our souls forever? That's it? And it was their comfort that he attacked. And lots of people feel that way today about Jesus. You know, lots of people today say, well, you know, I like Jesus. Jesus is a teacher. Or maybe a lot of people call him a prophet. That's kind of maybe a little bit of an upgrade for, for Jesus, my Jesus, whoever my Jesus is, you know, who belongs to. My Jesus is just a prophet or a teacher. Or the one I love that you hear a lot today is my Jesus is, re, is a really good man. And I like Jesus. And there were very few people like Jesus. Jesus loved poor people. Jesus loved prostitutes. Jesus loved sinners and tax collectors. And I really like Jesus. And I'd really like to be like Jesus. But that is not who Jesus is alone. I mean, it's true that he did all that. But that's not the essence of Jesus. Paul declares the essence that Jesus is the Christ. Lots of people are like that. Trusting in their own spirituality their own works of goodness to have a relationship with God, do not need to humble themselves and admit they cannot do it with a holy God. You know, it's all about whether God is holy and other and separate or not. Or whether God's just kind of like one of us. If He's holy, other, and separate, human beings cannot make it. And it takes some humility to receive a gift. It takes some humility to allow somebody to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And that is exactly why some people reject Jesus. Because they would actually like to determine what it is. And they would like to do it all on their own. Rather than humbly receive the gift of salvation through Jesus' work. And look, everybody's looking for something. You don't have to be terribly smart to see that. 
And it doesn't even have to be other religions. It doesn't even have to be the, the gods of other religions. I mean, we're all looking for something to make our lives. We're all looking for something to save us. The question isn't whether just is Jesus your Savior and Lord, but who, who or what or what idea or what person is your Savior and Lord? We are intensely religious. We have a sense, to, a, t- a tendency to transcendentalize things in our lives to make them the most important, to make them the object of our pursuit, to make our world come together to be saved and to be happy and integrated. Whatever that is, that's your Savior. That's your Jesus. You could be an atheist and have a strange Jesus. Could be money, that's your Jesus. Could be sex, that's your Jesus. Could be power, could be popularity. You can say there's no God and we can easily find out who your Jesus is. Because that's the way human beings are. They're always looking and trying to integrate, trying to find, trying for that meaning. Others today say that Jesus is the Savior, but He's not the Lord. So some people kind of say He's not savior he's not the christ he's a good man other people say it really doesn't matter i don't even believe in god but they have a jesus of their own making a savior at least i keep calling it a jesus let's say a savior and then there are people who actually separate the word jesus and christ um i remember back in the 90s there was this this controversy called the lordship controversy do y'all ever remember the the lordship controversy i mean you know people would separate Jesus, the Savior, from Christ, the anointed, the ruler, the, the Lord who saves. And they say something like this. In 1983, I accepted Jesus as my Savior, but I didn't accept Him as Lord until 1991. Really? Half of Jesus came into your life in 1983. I am so sure Jesus was willing to split His identity in two for you. No, Paul comes into Thessalonica expecting hearts to be opened by the love of God, the grace of God, because Jesus is the Savior, because He literally died for us. And He is the Messiah, the Deliverer, who reigns on the throne of David. This is who He is. Jesus the Christ, or in short, Jesus Christ. That's why we call Him Jesus Christ. In Matthew 16, 13, Jesus asked His own disciples the same question that I'm kind of asking you today. Who, who do the people say that I am? And this is a Jewish culture, obviously, in, in Israel. Some say that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others say you're Elijah, this kind of a prophecy. And, or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Please hear the significance of Peter's answer. And Jesus said, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And you are blessed, Peter. Peter stood in front of everybody and spoke for the whole group. He goes, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. The Son of the living God. You see, Peter got it. You're the deliverer who will reign on Jesus, uh, David's throne forever. You're not only the one who will save you are the one who will rule. The Jewish leaders of Thessalonica 
said, oh, we believe in a Christ, we believe in a Messiah, but that peasant Jew from Galilee cannot be him. (laughs) Cursed is everyone hung on a tree. That guy was hung on a tree by the Romans in the most ignominious punishment and execution damned by the Romans, damned by God. Cursed is the biblical word. They didn't understand, did they? That's the whole point of Jesus. We are damned before a holy God. We are cursed. And so Jesus took our curse. And He died in our place on a tree. The most cursed of all emblems of of being cursed. They did not accept Jesus as Savior. And they certainly didn't accept Him as Messiah and there were, they were very angry, particularly as Paul is preaching. And all these folks begin to open their hearts to God's love that has come down and not all this striving trying to go up. People start putting their trust in Jesus. Gentiles start putting their trust in Jesus. The text says they were, quote, jealous. Now, we don't know whether that's jealous, like, look at all the people going to Paul and look, there's not many people going to me. Or whether it's jealous for what they believed, you know. We're not sure which kind of jealousy it is, there, it is here, but they were angry, they were jealous about the people flocking to hear Paul talk about the gospel. And, uh, and, and from their vantage point, Paul misleading all those people. And so they caused trouble. They caused a riot to happen. And uh, there's a backstory about Claudius and Rome and and this incredible riot and all the Jews for a period of time getting kicked out of Rome and they're kind of scared that they're going to get kicked out of Thessalonica, etc. And so there, there's some political motivation under there, but there's particularly uh, a theological motivation. And uh, they claim, they, they, they say of, of Paul, you know, and it's so funny to hear Jewish people say this. Isn't it interesting when people want what they want, they'll say whatever they want to get it. They'll even say things that are contradictory to what they used to say to get what they want. You know what they're saying? They're saying they're not going to bow down to Caesar. That there's another king. Well, give me a break. That's what the Jews have been saying since they were occupied by the Roman Empire. This is not news. But they were trying to, to, to stir this up in the city of Thessalonica. And they stirred it up. And they went to the home of Jason, who was one of the early converts. And they beat on the door. And they couldn't find Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. They had escaped. But they found Jason. And they found several of the other brand new tender believers who hadn't done a thing but believe in grace. And they took them and they brought them before the ruling council and brought all these political and theological accusations and everybody got stirred back in the head up and they had to they had to post bail to keep from being punished for being christians now that that's what you see that's what paul expected pushback not just conversion so what what you believe about jesus and people believe a lot of things about their jesus what you believe about jesus we find out as we read on the text, in the text, is not as important as what the scriptures say about Jesus. That's the second thing I want to look at is, 
is the Bereans. You know, Paul and his friends are, are sent out and, and they, they go down to Berea. And, and we love the Bereans. The Bereans, I mean, compared to Thessalonica, the Berea is like this little backwood, t- tiny little town, you know, of, of no consequence, basically. But the people who live there are remembered and, and memorialized as those who actually looked it up. When they heard people say things about the Messiah, these are the Jews in Berea, they actually looked it up. They actually looked it up in the Scriptures. They didn't just hear somebody. They weren't just emotionally moved by somebody. They didn't just hear a story and say that must be right. They looked it up. And let me tell you something. You should be very careful who you say is the Savior and the Christ because that's who you give your life to. You should be very careful who you declare the Savior and the Christ because you're going to have to serve that person. And it might be your Jesus who you serve already. It might be the things you're looking to in your life and you'll never be able to get enough of it all to be satisfied as God wants us to be satisfied and that's your Jesus. It's best not to intuit who Jesus is, who the Savior is. Or even to take someone's word for it just because they say it. The Berean Jews checked it out. Verse 10 The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Maybe they heard Paul say these words. Maybe they went and examined the scriptures and read these words, some of which we've already used in the service this morning. Maybe they turned to Isaiah 53 and read these words. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender plant. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no majesty that we should look upon him. He's like us. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely He has taken up and borne our griefs. Surely He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you can read even later in this passage how he was 
executed, how he was assigned a grave with the rich, how he would be the firstborn among many, and how he would see his generations. That's in the Old Testament. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus the Savior in the Messiah, uh, in the Old Testament. Or maybe he read this as Jesus being the Christ uh, or the Messiah. And it's Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For unto us a child is born. Unto us. I mean, don't you love that? To us. God, to us. Unto us a son is given. Remember? The kingship. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end and on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the lord will accomplish this do you get it the bereans maybe they heard it maybe they looked it up they said okay there it is jesus is the messiah is the savior and the messiah is the one who rules and reigns you put it all together and here is paul's argument in verse 2 of our text he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the christ to suffer and to rise from the dead And he said to them, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul was in the synagogue. You know one of the great things about the synagogue was? You notice where it says he reasoned with them? In the synagogue, you didn't just have a monologue. He had a dialogue. I mean, you preached, don't get me wrong, but you took questions. And you got a chance to answer. And so so what, what we see is that Paul is providing even more information to their personal questions about the true identity of Jesus. And many people, and we read all about these people um, uh, who believed and and the Jewish people who believed and the prominent Greeks and, and the prominent women among the Greeks. And there's all these details about all these people who believed and, and the church in Thessalonica and in Berea was born and the Roman world was being just turned upside down. 300 years later, Christianity would be declared the official religion of the Roman Empire. Who'd have thunk it? Because it happened. So, if Jesus is the Christ, what does it mean to us right now? We've talked about what it means from the scriptures. But what does it mean to us right now? For some people here even, and in ten, at 1050, it means for some people you don't need to run any longer from Jesus. Love has come down. And, and you're about to be found by Jesus, by grace, by forgiveness and love, and real purpose. And, and if you think that you've done, gone too far, if you think you're not a candidate for salvation, let me tell you, the only thing you got to have to be saved is sin. 
The only qualification that we bring to the cross is that we are selfish sinners trying to put it together our own way and we have fallen short of the glory of God and love has come down. And all we have to do is believe in the one who has completed everything on our behalf. And we are found by him. We are forgiven every time. We are loved and given real purpose in our lives. But for others... It means that we need to act out, meaning you've put your trust in Christ, on the idea that Jesus is the Savior. And we need to act out on the idea that He is the anointed King, the Christ. You see, we have become far too satisfied to live on the bread of our own stuff and our own busyness and our own entertainments and everything else. And we are internally bored to death and empty feeling as believers. You know why? Because that's not the bread of God that came down. That's not the life that is truly life. Can I I tell you something truly? Can I talk about college football for a minute? (laughs) You know, uh, my team won yesterday, by the way. I remember when I was growing up, there were like two games on every weekend, or three, maybe three if you really, maybe it was a night game. And of course, mine was hardly ever on. Every time you turn on television, there's another one of these games. Every time you turn on television, there's somebody talking about who's going to win, why they didn't win, why they won, etc. The oversaturation on sports. And I'll tell you, there are people who live and die by this stuff. My team won, and I felt strangely empty. You know why? Because I just must have wanted it too bad. (laughs) Because it really wasn't bread, folks. If that's your Savior, if that's your integrating factor to give you meaning, bless your heart. And that, that is kind of where we go even as believers. It's just one example. How can you have so much and yet feel hollow? From the so much. Now, we, need, we are bored and we feel empty because we're, we're eating the wrong bread. And what we need to do is, is reawaken to the, the incredible, amazing wonder of God's grace for us and the meaning of what it is to be able to rest in Christ, be secure in Christ, to be able to... In Christ. And then we need to not only be re-amazed by grace, Jesus, Savior, we need to re-up on being a follower of the Christ who reigns. We need to discover what it is in His Word that makes a Christian life a distinctively Christian life. And loving and speaking and acting out on grace in His name. We're not those people, theoretically, that are just kind of waiting on the world to change. This passage says we need to be the people, by by Jesus' authority, power, and grace, that are turning the world upside down. Frederick Beekner, who I have a little cache of quotes from said this he said your calling in life 
is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. I love that. Your calling life is where your greatest joy is, is where it meets the world's greatest need. If your greatest joy is the grace of God and the love of God, then use your gifts. Use your talents. Use, be relational, love, speak, and let that joy in Christ meet the world's greatest need, which is the grace and love of God. And Paul shows us when we live like Jesus is the Christ, the world is turned upside down. Let's pray. Lord, uh, would you help us? Um, it doesn't matter who it is in, in the entire world today. Everybody's seeking. Everybody's serving. And we know that our idols, they don't allow us to rest. They demand more and more. And we have to go deeper and deeper. But you have come to us. Um, amazing. But we know, God... We know that love is giving. We know that love is sacrifice. And so why wouldn't it be that salvation would come through sacrifice? Lord, we know that the idols and religions demand that we continue to sacrifice. Lord, thank you that in Christ Jesus... You have sacrificed for us. And we can receive you, and we can rest, and we can find true love and security and true purpose. Lord, would you do that in people's lives this morning? Would you open hearts to what you have done rather than what we do? If you never put your trust in Christ and you'd like to, just pray, Lord, I can't do it. And I want to turn from all that. And I want to put my trust in you, Jesus. And all that you've done for me, as you, God, have so loved the world and so loved me. And thank you that even now you've come into my life. Even now I've been given relationship. Even now I'm forgiven. Even now I'm loved and will never be separated from this love. And Lord... Many of us walk with you, the person preaching included, and, and we begin to try to be satisfied on the bread of other things when you, Jesus, are the bread of life. And we sometimes begin to separate you as Savior and Lord because we want to talk about your grace, but we don't want to talk about what it would be to be your follower and to have faith and to actually sacrificially love. Lord, would you renew our amazement with grace? And would you renew our love for you? And would you lead us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.